You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm very proud to be speaking to Arabella Weir, who was lucky enough to let me go around to her beautiful and very colourful house. Arabella, as many of you will know, uh, came to prominence as one of the female members of the Fast Show, to all intents and purposes the only full-time female cast member uh, and responsible for some brilliant sketch comedy. Uh, for those of you listening outside the UK, for those in the UK, the Far Show will need no introduction. But for those of you listening outside, it was one of the most influential and one of the funniest uh, sketch shows that the British uh, public have enjoyed in recent years. I mean, 20 years ago now, I think, but they really popularised an, an extremely fast and punchline filled and catchphrase driven type of comedy. And we're going to talk a lot about Arabella's experiences there. We're going to talk about the Me Too movement. Um, we're going to talk about Arabella's experiences as very often the only female performer in the room uh, during some of the, the making of the fast show and the creative friction and the tension involved in uh, in that situation. So we're going to go into depth on a lot of those things and also possibly some uh, some of her plans for the future and some of my suggestions for her plans for the future. We uh, We might... I basically try to uh, bully her into going to Edinburgh. <laughs> I think she might be up for it, so let's all support her. Um, this, without any further ado, is Arabella Weir. Anybody other than doctors and surgeons and people with proper jobs talking about the craft journey, uh, that's pretentious in and of itself. But do you think there is one? A craft journey? Yeah. That, that's the, um, it made me split my sides. That was what, what's his name said, Ben Kingsley, or rather Sir Ben Kingsley. And he said, I only do interviews so that I can take a young actor who may be reading this piece on my craft journey. No, I, I don't, I'd be the last person to ask if, are we, have we started? Yeah, yeah. I'd be the last person to ask if there was a craft journey because I kind of, I never saw myself as having any power and I was probably right uh, when I started. So I just thought I'm... I'm lucky to be here, 
and I'm sort of got to hang on by this, you know, I've got to hang on, but I'm not actually sort of entitled to be here because I haven't got the qualifications. And I always imagined that everybody else was more entitled than me and everybody else had a better purchase on knowing how funny they were than I did. All I knew was that if I sort of kept going, I could be funny and entertain people, but I didn't really have any handle on it. So if someone said, what was your craft journey? I mean, I never made decisions. I just thought, well, well, I'm getting paid. They want me to do that. I better do it. Pretty much my approach to sleeping with blokes as well when I was younger, which is, well, he wants to sleep with me, so I guess I'd better sleep with him, Um, which is why the whole Me Too thing is um, so fascinating to me. Uh, Not obviously the Me Too thing is a real campaign, and obviously plenty of, generally speaking, blokes have abused their power, but they'll have done that in every industry that you can think of. I'm sure in banking there's been, or lawyering, or, you know, plumbing. If you can get away with wielding your power and make people do things they don't want to do, or rather, that's why the Aziz Azari story was so interesting, because he obviously imagined he wasn't forcing himself on someone, but that they were having a nice time, but maybe he's not that experienced what he often jokes about sort of you know not having been popular with girls and stuff so you kind of think there's got to be room for misinterpretation I mean not every bloke is a rapist and not every one of us is a virgin bride going oh my god he tried to show me his willy uh and we want to be very careful about going down the road of girls are sort of innocent virgins who are resisting men at all times I mean I was with a bloke the other night a male friend who is heterosexual and he just said, Christ, the amount of shags I've knocked out just to sort of... Because I kind of thought I fancied her more than I did. And then I was embarrassed and I was in bed with her. And I went, Christ, and, you know, and I said, you can imagine how many times I've done that as a woman. You kind of think, uh, sort of wish I hadn't come here, quite literally. Uh, and I'm sort of, oh, God. And it's more, certainly, when I was a teenager and a young woman, it was much easier to just knock one out than to go, I'm really sorry, but this date's going badly. Yeah. And I don't fancy you. Yes. And he said the same thing, and he's a heterosexual man. So imagine, we were both saying, imagine you're in the room with someone who's got power over you, who could actually give you employment, and you're thinking, how am I going to say, do you know what, I just don't find you attractive. How are we going to go down? I mean, anyway, so it's a... And there was a lot of that when I was doing comedy in the early days. We got very quickly onto the Me Too um, campaign, but men wielding their power over you in some way, when I say you, I mean a woman, to get what they want is hardly new. And so, obviously, it's great that the Me Too campaign is getting so much purchase. It's fantastic that women feel they can speak out. But we do want to be careful about getting too precious about every bad date, every disgusting snog, every kind of bloke's cock you've seen and thought, oh, I really don't want to do this. And oh, then, well. <laughs> oh, well. But also, we don't want to go... So they're all sexually um, rampant and assaulting you. And, and we, we, as in women, are all kind of virgin dollies going, oh, my gosh, he tried to make me do something I didn't want to do. I'm probably going to regret saying this if anyone hears this, because I was with a friend last night who's a very powerful journalist. And she was going, somebody's got to write the piece. And I said, well, I can't write it. I said, I would write it but I, I, I don't mind who hates me or sort of sends me abuse, but I can't because I'm too old. I said, you need a woman who's about 30 to 35 or sort of, you know, 25 to 35 saying sometimes there are just shit dates. 
Uh, would it? Who would? Who would it help? Would it? Would it help for for a thirty year old woman to write that piece? Is it? Is it this weird thing that it's so current at the moment that should we? Will it? Will it help to say? Ah, oh, yeah, but it isn't everyone. Or no, or, it probably maybe wouldn't, it wouldn't help. help right now. It wouldn't help. But we, what we don't want to run away with is the idea that we women are all victims and men are all sexually aggressive and insensitive and uh, essentially, you know, potential rapists. You want to identify the Harvey Weinsteins of this world and whichever other person from the Harvey Weinstein just to the spark who goes nice tits, love. You definitely want to out those people. You definitely don't want that to be the culture on any kind of... Um, shoot or, you know, theatre experience, and you'll know as a stand-up. Even now, I would say it might be changing a little bit, but the whole kind of gladiatorial aspect of stand-up, which often happens in drinking establishments, lends itself better to the male culture, and therefore it's always going to be slightly harder for a woman to penetrate that um, environment than it is for a bloke. If there are 95 blokes drinking beer in a, in a venue, they are just... It's going to stand to reason that when a bloke comes on stage and goes, oh, you'll never guess where he opens with, it's going to be easier than for the woman coming on stage and that she will just have to try that bit harder and be that bit funnier. But then that would probably be true of life in general. You know, as long as men are running most of the industries whatever they may be, it's always going to be easier for the same gender to, you know, open or to sort of get purchase. Something I noticed, you, you were talking before about different industries in the lawyering industry or yeah. finance or whatever. Um, <clears throat> something that is happening, I think, it's more newsworthy when someone we all thought was a good guy turns out to have some sort of past. And then at the same time, there's stories about Steven Seagal perhaps being a predator and that's not a story. So, I mean, people care, but it's not as much of a story because you kind of look at him and you go, yeah, it probably was. So it gets less column inches, creates less of a Ferrari, and as a result, there's less pressure on that bad guy's life to step down than someone who was a bad guy who was apparently a good guy. I'm talking in, I couldn't be talking in more reductive terms. But do, do you know what I mean? Isn't it, uh, it's quite weird that it's, it's the people who we thought were good eggs. I'd, I don't know, but I would like to think that the gorgeous... 26-year-old girl whose job it is to wear a bikini on the next Steven Seagal film, I would like to think... I mean, she could be a half-wit, but I would like to think that the general... that more that people on that set will be more aware and more yeah. nervous about letting Steven Seagal go, get that girl to come to my trailer at sure. lunchtime or whatever he does or whatever he's being accused of. I'd like to think that people look, you know, just like anything, the more people speak about it, the more it will become unacceptable and the, the more people will be, quite apart from anything else, just nervous of, of saying something that they can, they'll probably carry on thinking it and the crew will probably think, oh, nice tits or, you know, wouldn't mind sure. a bit of that. But there'll be less... The atmosphere is presumably, one hopes, changing in which people can feel OK about saying this. I mean... You know, I'm old enough to remember when stand-up comics used words like packy and, you know, appalling racial epithets to, that to a middle-class educated girl, white girl like me, 
were totally unacceptable, but absolutely wouldn't have been unacceptable with a bunch of electricians. I'm not saying all electricians, but, you know... <laughs> it's too late. You're uh, clearly stated. You're clearly well, stated saying, in, in a less well-educated environment that these men were presumably playing to historically and possibly even came to, there would have been no question that they couldn't use these words. And we've already, in, what, 25, 30 years, come to a place where they'd be unemployable. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily just because of um, uh, social integration, because there are huge swathes of Britain that aren't integrated culturally at all, where you still couldn't say something like that, because they might say it at their homes to their mums mm. and dads, um, or however people speak privately. But I think people would know that you just couldn't say those kind of things, racial things and I would like to think that we're sort of there now in terms of women that no one's going to they're just not going to structure jokes in which the girl is in some way um, not fully participant in whatever or, or you know the girl if there is a girl in the in the joke featured I mean I hope so I just think the fact that you can people are being emboldened uh, but I think it probably is too soon and I'm certainly not going to uh, write it to start talking about, yes, but we don't want to all be depicted as yeah. um, made of paper and, you know, assaulted by men. I mean, there are plenty of women who are up for sex, feel like doing it, and, you know, there may be a lot of women who are sexually aggressive. It's just that women don't have the same power as men do in any walks of life, and therefore they will have been more subject to um, abuse than if they have the same level of power. Being the only woman on uh, an all-male show, the fast show, the thing for yeah. which you're, you're known... Most famous, Most yes. famous. Um, what, was, what was that like? That's, a, that's not a great question, is it? But seeing through the lens of the stuff we're talking about at the moment, well, given as well yeah. that that was 20 years ago, and, you know, that's yeah. a good while. Um, well, actually, that's sort of why I'm so well equipped to talk about this now these were highly skilled men and at least two of them were my proper friends and yet together the atmosphere I often used to say at the time I never pretended it was any different I never did any oh well you know we all love each other so much um it was like being with a minor rugby club because they were emboldened to make jokes I mean obviously none of them were as far as I know um rapist or you know anything a crime but the sort of jokes that were made were not in a general sort of joking about way talking about people's you know I was expected to be one of the lads and you've got to remember that at the time and I remember saying this is bollocks at the time we were doing the first fast show somebody came in with this new magazine loaded so I said what the fuck is that and they went, oh, you know, I bought it because it's got an article. I mean, I'll have to make up a footballer, but, you know, eight, <laughs> um, some, I don't know. Or perhaps it wasn't even a footballer. Some, perhaps it was a higher end. Perhaps it was Noel Gallagher. So somebody people admired and the whole world thought was talented. So not a kind of brain-dead person, a person who is bringing new and exciting talent. But it's still got pictures of girls in provocative and submissive poses. And I just went, no, look, this is just porn. And they all went, no, it isn't, because it's got an article about Michael Sandel or whatever. 
And I went, no, it's porn dressed up with a kind of serious article. And that is how all those magazines, nuts, loaded, got sort of under the radar because they went, oh, no, no, we've got an article about Stuart Goldsmith. He's a new comedian or and he's doing, I don't know, he's playing South African, only refusing to play to white audiences, whatever. And, and I went, but that doesn't justify the tits. And that was exactly what went on in the fast show. We had, because I went, we, we've got a naked girl in a sketch. And they went, well, yeah, it's a joke. It's postmodern. And I went, it's not postmodern tits. It's still tits. Um, so I would have, I mean, I think they all thought I was a bit stroppy and ghastly because I'd finally reached a point in my career where I was thinking, no, I'm here as an equal member. So I am not about to go, oh, um, oh yeah. Or just, you know, I never used to capitulate as a young actress before I started doing comedy. What I just did was said nothing and then told all my friends the appalling things that had happened or made sort of jokes about it on stage when I used to do a bit of stand-up. But I, by the time of doing the fast show, I thought, no, these guys are my friends. I mean, these, you know, we can't be really condoning this kind of thing. Um, but it was very blokey. There was a very blokey atmosphere. Uh, well, it was just charged a lot of the time. And, of course, if there were things like, if there were sketches to be dropped because we'd overrun shooting, they'd be mine. And so I think... I think there was also a feeling at the BBC that it was a sort of lad show, but then the character I did certainly does my bum look big in this. That character was very, very popular. And suddenly the sort of the UK, um, you know, what the advertising world and just the general public kind of went, oh, they were all doing that catchphrase. So then I think people realised, or certainly the powers that be went, oh, so maybe it's not just a lad show. OK, so the balance, did the balance of power shift accordingly in terms of your sketches getting used or not used, getting dropped no, or not dropped? No, I think dropped. what happened is I I remember feeling combative pretty much all the time on that show. I mean, I freely admit that might also be to do with I've got quite a combative nature, but I remember thinking, I'm here, I am definitely going to get equal representation, not that I did, but I am not about to titter or kind of play uh, play along I I bloody well better be uh, counted here and my sketches better be I mean you know at the end of the day Paul and Charlie had you know they were the producers and they have they edited it themselves so you know anybody could not be in it or be in it um I think what happened is the show became very successful and therefore my my essentialness within it became clearer. Okay. Uh, but I don't think it was that people suddenly realised, I mean, let's face it, this is twenty over 20 years ago we started doing it. Uh, so I don't think that at that stage there was any notion of, oh, we better have a better representation of women. I think they just thought, Ari is part of the show and you never take an element, if you can help it, out of a show because you never know what it is that makes up the chemistry. So you never go, let's just lose the girl. Um, or let's just lose the whatever guy. Um, but I think all of us weren't... I mean, you know, you said earlier about a... Um, uh, what is it? A craft journey. I don't... Paul and Charlie knew the show they wanted to do. They'd worked with Harry Enfield for years. 
they were, they'd fashioned their own show. But I don't think as it was going along, motoring along and developing, I don't think anyone had a kind of, right, now we'll do this, so we will feature the girl 15% more, and we will do this. I think we just were doing the characters we enjoyed doing. We were coming up with more characters. Because the whole the whole show being defined and everybody's character being defined by a catchphrase, that was kind of accidental. We hadn't started going, you've got to get to a catchphrase that will, you know, that will define that character. We just kind of sort of organically, that's a very pretentious word, um, but it, that literally just sort of developed. You'd sit there writing your own character and thinking, how can I finish her, you know, how can, what will sum her up? And of course, okay. so that's how That's amazing it. to hear, because I do remember watching, I remember being at college watching the first ever episode and not getting it at all, not no, liking it, quite it at a mishmash, all. Yeah. And really just going, these are the sketches don't go anywhere, they're just sentences. What's the point of this? And then you see episode two and suddenly you're killing yourself laughing. To hear that that developed more organically than by design oh, yeah. is incredible. No, no, no one went, no one, there was no, as there is often not with things, there was no kind of right, we're going to do this. And then you, you go away and come up with some characters, but they must have a catchphrase. It just sort of, yeah, I think it was after we'd done the first series we realised that that's where the kind of... Um, that's where the sort of... We, because you were doing sketches that had to be quick, you then had to be able to get the character very quickly. Yes. So what you knew, well, we didn't know, and we were very lucky that the audiences did stick with us, but if you can... The moment they see the character and they know it's going to end with does my bum look big in this or suit you, sir, or no offence, whatever it is, then you can sort of enjoy yourself en route to the catchphrase, but you've only got sort of 90 seconds to three minutes, if that. So um, so did, and my, my knowledge of the kind of the, the structure of the team isn't isn't all that good. Did you, At what point did you come on board? Was it sort of Paul and Charlie going, we've got this idea and we'll cast you? Yeah, you... yeah. Paul and Charlie, I, was, I remember I was in the bar with them. I was working with Alexi Sale and we were in the BBC bar and we'd just done Alexi Sale's stuff and I was starting to write bits and bobs. I wrote... Um, Alexi had asked me to write um, uh, sketches for two lesbians who ran a bike shop in Hackney called The Menstrual Cycle. And and he would play one of the lesbians and I would play the other. And Paul and Charlie, who I'd worked with a bit when they were working with Harry Enfield, had come to see a recording. And they said, oh, very casually, they sort of went, oh, we're, we're going to be doing our own show now. Do you want to be the girl in it? Um... And then I think they'd found John Thompson and Simon Day and Mark Williams. So they'd worked with Mark Williams on something else and then they'd sort of asked around for sort of new stand-ups, which is how they got John and Simon. And then John and Simon had recommended Carolina Hearn because she was in the first series, but she was all not doing very much and she was already on her way to doing Mrs Merton. So she wasn't... She didn't come back after the first series and was barely in the first series, which was sort of... I guess, my good fortune, because um, that was my Rosemary's Baby, because uh, you've got to know the plot of that film to understand <laughs> that joke. Anyway, so Caroline wasn't in, wasn't available and was doing her own thing, so I ended up being the only girl in the fast show pretty much. Just to, just to go back on that for a moment, they said, do you want to be the girl? Like, that's pretty telling be, in itself. To be entirely fair, they may not have said, do okay. you want to be the girl in the show? But they might have done. They'll probably object if they hear this. They probably, I think they just said, do you want to, do you want to be in it? Sure. And I remember thinking, 
I remember, you know, if I were doing psychotherapy, which in a way like this is, I remember thinking, I am going to absolutely sink my teeth into this. This is not getting away from me. I am going to do this. I'm going to do this to the best of my ability. Because I remember sitting down to write a sketch and thinking, which is very much my psyche anyway, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. And then I was thinking, well, I've got to keep going because otherwise I've got to go back to them and go, I don't really think I can. And and I have spent quite a lot of my career up till that point being self-destructive. So I just thought, no, I'm really going to make this work. So I just started sort of observing things and... So was that your... You were writing sketches with Alexi or you were playing no, a sketch I, I, that Alexi had written? This no, was I wrote... I'd written the stuff for Alexi and me, the, the menstrual cycle. So I had had a bit of experience. But that was the first sketch that you'd written? Yeah, that was the first sketch I'd written in... What would it be? I mean, 1990... No, 1988 or... Yeah, about 1988. Yeah, that sounds like stuff. Era. Yeah, yeah. And so... Um, so Alexi really was the first person who sort of recognised that I could write comedy. And people used to say to me, panic-making, older people used to say to me, if you could write like you talk, you'd make a fortune. But I, because I always used, I was always a storyteller, I was always good at sort of going, and of course, a lot of my stories were about being sexually assaulted or being sexually uh, proposed to on sets, because of course, it mm, was funny. To me, it was funny. I mean, there were a couple of slightly frightening situations where one bloke came into my Winnebago and went, <clears throat> just sort of locked the door, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm really in trouble now, uh, because he was very aggressive. Um, but, yeah, he, he, I was doing a show with him, which, you know, I should never have been doing a show with him, but, you know, this is what I'm saying. You just do whatever you're offered when they offer you sure. whatever it was in those days, 5,000 quid. It probably was might not even been as much, but it was a lot of money, and, you know, you're paying to live, and... Like everybody else, you don't go. Oh, well, I obviously won't do that. Um, and you're at the time you were an actress, yeah. I was so an actress. you weren't, you didn't have that sense of kind of writing stuff for you to do yourself. That kind of license in uh, the real me is thin. Oh, yeah. Your book, you talk. Oh, you have done. Uh, I have. Done, I did yeah, read it. Done well. um, you uh, you talk about that, like that aspect of being an actress, whereby you are not only are you waging a psychological war against your own inability to believe that you can do it, but you're also waging a war against the circumstance of having to sit in casting places and... Next try- to, you know, uh, Greta Skaki and Joanne Wally and all my contemporaries who were sort of thin and beautiful, uh, which is the other reason I knew I was in the wrong place, because in those days, well, I think you had Hattie Jakes, who's obviously older than me, and for the, your listeners who don't know who she is, she was... I mean, she's dead now, but she was an extraordinarily fat woman who was also very tall. And that's what, that's, the comedy was in, she she was a talented comedian, but the comedy was that she was fat and ugly and would be trying to get off with Sid James or Kenneth Williams. And the joke would was, all the jokes were that it was hilarious that someone that fat and ugly would think of themselves as a sexual being or able to get off with the dish, Sid James. Yes, <laughs> I mean, exactly. Or in any way, I think, no, but what is so super offensive about the, that old comedy is never mind the unattractiveness of the bloke, it was hilarious that she would think that anybody, yeah. ugly or otherwise, camp. I mean, Kenneth Williams couldn't have been more obviously gay. But the joke was, here she is thinking she's entitled to a sexual appetite 
because she's so fat and ugly, when obviously she's not attractive to anybody, a homosexual or the revolting-looking Sid James. Um, and then by the time you get to my uh, age group, I mean, you know, my my um, period of, when I, you know, when I launched, there were, I think, I remember a director saying, yes, but the trouble is you're too pretty. So you could have been a sort of slightly chunky, working-class manifestly not trying to be pretty actress and then there was me who was apparently too pretty to be overweight and not thin enough to be the pretty one the pretty one because of course you couldn't possibly have a pretty girl who was also not thin and uh, and I completely bought into that as a young actress I mean when I started it was 1979 and I was whatever I was 21 and uh I was I was told, you know, every job I went for, people would say, you know, could you lose weight? But if I'd been uglier, it probably wouldn't have been a problem because then I could have been the fat, ugly friend, yeah. the maid, because, of course, you wouldn't have anybody posh. The maid, the nurse, I could have always been... When I first started out, I said, I'm going to um, start an agency called uh, Nurses, Hookers... What was it? Nurses, Hookers and Tarts or something. But, yeah, so you could be a nurse... If you were fat, or you could be a hooker, obviously. Um, but you'd be quite a boutique hooker. But yeah, I just remember making myself miserable being in the same audition rooms as all those beauties. So before we continue with this interview, just a brief interlude and a message from our sponsor, a little test sponsorship this week from beer52.com. That's beer52.com. What they do is they send you craft beer. They hand select thematic craft beers. I think the theme this month is Amsterdam, which is a place very dear to my heart. And they get all sorts of craft beers. They search out uh, small batch craft beers and you can tailor the box to your own personal preferences and they send them to their members. You can try your first case for free. And I should point out before I tell you any more, one thing I love about this is there's no minimum commitment. If it's not for you, you can pause or cancel any time. That is very much within... <laughs> that's what I look for in an internet-based offer. £5.95 delivery for a free case of eight craft beers. You get a free magazine and a snack. Um, and uh, yeah, Amsterdam themed at the moment. So beer52.com forward slash comcompod. That's beer52.com forward slash comcompod. And uh, what else can I tell you about them? I, I think this suits my... We're just, you know, maybe I'm not going to do this forever, but this is a little test advert, and I think it suits my plans for advertising because it is something I would genuinely use, and they've offered to send me some as well. Um, we haven't got round to that yet, so I can't sit here going, they're all incredible, but obviously they change every time, and I imagine some of them are going to be right up my street. <laughs> Do you think, this is something that Sarah Pascoe said to me when she was on the show years ago, um, she said, I was talking about the types of gigs I did, she was talking about the types of work that she did at the time, and she said that we kind of, we, we go towards things that reflect our self-image. So as someone for whom I know from your book, you were kind of browbeaten by your parents. They oh, said yeah, some yeah, outrageous yeah. things to you <laughs> yes, about yes, you. Yes. And all the way through this book, I'm going, but Arabella isn't fat. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, you're, you know what I mean? You're, you're just not. This is not, you're re I'm reading this book thinking, this is someone of average build who has been told her whole life, just picked on by her parents and told yeah, yeah, that yeah. she's fat in a, in a way that completely doesn't gel with reality. And yet you're going into 
I'm interested into whether you went into acting as an escape from that, or given the the picture you've painted of what acting was like, whether you went into it in order to realise, well, in order to yeah. perpetuate that kind of criticism. It, what is it? You you know you you try and join a club that doesn't want you as a member. Sure. So uh, I I definitely wanted to be a performer. I never thought of comedy because it wasn't really around. I mean, when I was growing up, there'd have been, I think I, the first person I remember seeing, I didn't see her live, but I saw her on telly and hearing about. When I was about 12, my dad was working in New York and someone gave me a Bette Midler record and she had started in the gay clubs singing and then doing a bit of comedy in between her songs. So she was more like a vaudeville act then. And I remember thinking, oh, I'd love to do this. Um, But then by the time I was sort of 13, thinking, well, then I'd better be an actress. Because the comedy wasn't really a sort of trodden path. And I don't think I'd have ever thought of doing it just doing comedy. And, And then, of course, when I actually became an actress... Um, or went to drama school and then became an actress, I literally had joined the only club in which people were allowed to say to you, but you can't properly be in the club because you're too fat. So, yeah, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think there was something at play. I mean, it sounds so fucked up now, but anyway. um, I think I was trying to get that world, I was about to say them, but really it was that world to say you can come in, even though you're a bit too fat, which means you're not too fat. So I was trying to probably get accepted in a world where officially they were entitled to say, ah, but the girl playing this obviously would never be fat because a a fat girl never gets the right boy or whatever. Um, and, And then somehow I must have been thinking... Um, and then once I've been, I can make this, um, uh, I can make a, I don't think the word is simile, is it allegory? Much more easily, you won't be surprised to hear through sex. I remember... I was about to say the echoes of, sorry, go on, yeah, yeah. I remember really attractive boys that everybody fancied fancying me and me thinking, yes, because I'm think I'm quite pretty and quite a lot of boys fancy me. Now, the problem is going to be when he sees me, when we go to bed together and he sees how, in my head, fat I am, he will obviously go off me because I've tricked him up to this point. And when we're literally naked together, I'm not going to be able to trick him because there's going to be the evidence of my inability to be... I'm not qualified to be going out with the most gorgeous boy in our area when we were 15 and it'll just be a matter of time before he finds out I've tricked him. And that's exactly what I felt about acting work. Um, I feel like at this point I should stop and congratulate your negative self for doing such an incredibly <laughs> good job of proving to you, like almost taking the evidence and proving to you that the evidence means something completely opposite. Yes, like, but that's I never, an incredible I never, job you've done on yourself. Well, I never believed it, though. So, you know, I'd get off with, I mean, Nick was the one that everybody fancied when we were 15, and he fancied me the most, and I went out with him. And, of course, I didn't fancy Nick that much. Oops, um, never mind. He's happily married now, I gather. Um, and But everyone was going, oh, my God, I can't believe Nick got off with you. And I was thinking, yeah, neither can I. Uh, but as I'd got this prize, 
I, you know, got the prize of Nick at 15. And then, of course, didn't really want it, as is often, because I hadn't worked out what I wanted. All I'd worked out was that I'd got to trick the uh, the boy that everybody fancied into getting off with me. And I couldn't possibly... He wouldn't have been getting off with me unless I'd tricked him. But that's exactly what acting and comedy is like. You think, I'm not really funny. How would anybody know I was really funny? I'm tricking them into liking me by non-stop talking. And, yeah, I might make a few funny observations. And, and sure, and then, everyone might laugh a lot, yeah. but that's still, yeah. that doesn't interfere with... <laughs> and they're all buying my stuff and stuff, but I've tricked them. I mean, and that definitely... But that's from my... There's no... I mean, there's absolutely no... Uh, um, there's no mystery there. My parents brought me up with you are not entitled to be anywhere you're not entitled to believe that you can be loved for who you are it they were scottish and let's face it well certainly that generation of scott everything had to be hard work i mean the 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 quality of life and the entitlement of life was about how much work you'd put in so if you're just expecting to be loved because you're my child, that's a mistake. You must be working the hardest, eating the least, trying the hardest to be pretty, in their case, getting into Oxford, getting a first. But at no point must you just be there and think you can be loved. That's a mistake. Love does not come unconditionally. It has to be earned. And, I mean, I had quite good, pretty good relationships with both my parents who split up as they got older, but only because I had learnt to be extraordinarily rude and combative. So I would say my dad, to his dying day, if I went to have a drink with him, and he always, he and his wife, who I loved very much, um, would have nuts and crisps out because they were middle class and that's what you have with wine and stuff. And then, I'm not saying it's the province of middle classes, but, you know, they would have... And my dad, to his dying day almost, would say, um, you know nuts are fattening. And, of course, from about 18, I'd do, like, three minutes of nuts are fattening? Are you fucking kidding me? Nuts are fattening? And then my dad would go, all right, all right. And I'd go, but no, you should have said. Why didn't you tell you earlier? And I, you're going to tell me crisps are fattening. And, you know, but it was... But I would never, ever have expected either of them to have... Uh, praised me or loved me or just for being. There was just that was out of the question. Is that what you're describing there when you launch into the kind of nuts are fattening rant? It's am I understanding that right? That when you when you if you did that long enough and worked hard enough at it, you could make them laugh. Yeah, I could make them laugh, and I could make them. That was my way of telling them to fuck off. Great, and that so it would be, you would be triumphant, and you so, would have made them laugh, and that would kind of switch them. That would make them have to climb down on the nuts of fattening thing, and as a result, would stop attacking me. Shut up! You. Stop attacking me! And also, uh, I remember early on finding, very early on at school, thinking I am naturally funny. Obviously, I didn't think this in quite such a sort of pretentious and uh, self-conscious way. But I remember thinking I am brave, and I'm naturally rude, or I'm naturally disrespectful. Or let us say at the most benign, I am ma- I am naturally cheeky. I don't, I have no fear of authority. I am uniquely equipped 
to be the one, the class clown. Because I had, I mean, I, I remember thinking my son has exactly what I, when he was, he has absolutely no fear of authority and he has no fear of consequences. And I remember thinking, I don't, there is nothing they can do to me. They're going to expel me, you know. So I learned then that the funnier, and of course, if you're trying to be funny at school, what you are is cheeky and disrespectful to teachers. You also will do the most daring things. And I had absolutely no fear doing any of that because I remember being intoxicated by the reaction I'd get from the class. And I remember thinking, nothing is going to stop me doing this because everybody loves me because I'm laughing. Because I remember thinking... So even when the sort of most handsome boys did want to get off with me, I remember thinking, well, that's not really... It was people sort of laughing with me and being, I cannot believe she did that with Miss So-and-so, and I can't believe it, you're the one who did that. It was that kind of notoriety that I thought, this is what I, this is what I'm hungry for. Did you, was there ever a time after school where that feeling was as vivid and exciting and delicious? Like when you were working on the fast show, when you were kind of publicly lauded, was that as good as the moment of all the girls going nuts in school? Well, funnily enough, on television, as you well know, from being a live act, you sort of, when people go, oh, are you in the fast show? I love that show. And and I would always think, yeah, you don't really mean me. Um, You mean the guys. Or, and even when they went, oh my God, I love your, does my bum look big in this? Or that woman you know, girl who boys can't hear or no offence. And I'd think, yeah, I, I, it always felt alloyed. But when we did the show live, I thought, well, no, it's me because there's three and a half thousand people here and they've roared when I've come on stage. And then you kind of think, oh, no wonder people want to be rock stars because I haven't even done anything. And, and I remember the first time we did the Fast Show Live, we did it, um, the first half of the show was Shooting Stars and the second half was the Fast Show Live. And I remember watching Bob and... Uh, Vic, I was about to say Jim, um, Bob and Vic go on stage and the audience going mental and they were more popular than us that first time round. And uh, I remember thinking, they're not doing anything and the audience are going mad. And and I, I mean, I think they're both supremely talented, so this isn't me going, but they're shit. I just remember thinking, they've earned this, but they're not even doing anything. There's no well-honed gags. They've worked nothing up for shooting stars. They're just doing it live in front of a, an audience and the audience are going mental. So there is a lot of that. Uh, but I, I always found that, I don't mean because I had theatre in my blood or anything like that. I just found it really, really exciting. And then that felt like, no, I've put the work in and now they like me. But that was the only time I ever really felt it. The rest of the time I'm thinking, meh. Because presumably when you were shooting the fast show, was it sort of half and half studio and... No, mainly not studio. It was mainly, because the, the ones when I think of the invisible woman or the woman that boys can't hear, no. I think of those as being mostly outside of a... Yeah, no, a, we didn't. we did very little studio. We did a couple of weeks and then you would do the most obvious sketches. We did do... No, I don't think we ever did. Did we ever do... Does my bum look bigger than the studio? We, yeah, we did. We must have done. In fact, no. And we did, I remember what we shot in the studio a lot because they were very easy to shoot in front of an audience. Um, different with boys. The girl who was all, um, you know, hard-ass with women and they yeah. were all like, you know, fingers, she said bottom and I am embarrassed. And um, God, there are so many women like that. Still! Um, uh, we shot that a lot in front of audiences, but then you do the most obvious ones like Suit You, Sir. 
that would be done a lot in front of an audience. Not Ted and Ralph and... Oh, Billy Bleach in the pub. I can't remember now. Shouldn't Don't ask me to go through the running thing of the show because I'll be like, yeah, <laughs> uh, uh. Um, And I... I've always had... It's probably just fucked upness, but I've always had... I think it isn't uniquely Scottish, but that kind of... Oh, not me. I mean, but did you see Stu in, in that sketch? He was great. But that kind of slight embarrassment of people going, I love that thing you do, and you're going, oh, I don't know what to do now. Because you're not... You're Certainly I was never working with the view of... Um, that's what I, one of the things I find so extraordinary about modern ce- celebrity, for what you know, what it's worth is, I have done this nowadays on purpose so that people will know who I am in the supermarket and so that I will get thirty thousand quid from OK Magazine when I have a baby, so that when my boyfriend's a convicted attacker in a nightclub, I can do a you know that the journey is very short and simple, but. I think one of the things that is true about anybody I admire is you're not doing it to be famous and you're not really doing it so that people in the street will go, I love that show. You just want to be able to do what you do well and what you love doing. And the byproduct seems to be, but the slightly embarrassing byproduct is people going, oh my God, I love that. I think the moment I felt most entitled to praise and admiration from strangers was when I wrote Does My Bum Look Big in this? And then through the publishers, I would get tons of letters. And I thought, well, I I definitely did that on my own. I definitely wrote that. And therefore, these women writing to me definitely mean me. And you managed not to have some version of yourself convince you that you'd tricked them? Because that, I do you a, mean, on I the basis version, of everything you've described yeah, before? I, no, I had a version of myself managed to think, well, you've got to be a bit pathetic if you've written to me. So I was able to... <laughs> well done. <laughs> so I was able to sort of alloy it by going, uh, well, you've written to me, so that's a bit. Um, you know, that already means you're a bit, you know, because who's the coolest person? The person who doesn't like you and doesn't want to be with you. Um, obviously, that's not true, but... But a great way to discount all that praise. Yeah, so when... when and then, you know, I'm, or I'd, it would be well-reviewed or, you know, people would say really nice things about it or quote it yeah I mean I find it very difficult to just be a kind of oh yeah no I did that and thank you very much I will find a way usually of going oh well yeah. I, I mean I wrote it really quickly well uh, and I look back and I think god you know no yeah I did a very good job and I'm very proud of myself but that's not a natural state for me <laughs> So this is Arabella. As you can hear, we're getting along famously. I came out of, I left Arabella's house very much feeling like a new friend of hers. She's a delight to talk to. And uh, and I'm not just saying that because of the fallout from last week. More on that later. Um, but she's fantastic. I don't think I need to sort of plug anything of hers. She's on telly at the moment. You can see her on telly. But I do really recommend her autobiography. It's called The Real Me is Thin. And it's a really funny book. And it's really kind of meaningful as well. I like it when someone does an autobiography through a particular prism of their own experience. It's not just about 
uh, it's not just about, hey, here's my life, but they've, they're taking a particular line on it. In this case, obviously, it's food and struggling with uh, eating and struggling with their relationship to food. So really recommend the book. And thank you very much to Arabella for coming on. Thank you to those of you who sent me very nice and supportive messages all last week. Uh, thank you to everyone who donated to the show. Recent donors include uh, James Keith, who came to see me in Leicester. Ah, oh, what a glorious couple of shows that was. The tour is officially started, and uh, I did my first tour show at the Leicester Comedy Festival, and also some new material, which I will talk to you about in more detail another time. But Keith came to both and left me a very generous donation online afterwards, which is very kind. Thank you to Emma. Thank you to Rhiannon, to Lorraine, to Ray. Uh, thank you to Matthew and Liam and everyone else. If you would like to donate to the show, you can do that at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate. You can support the show with a one-off donation or a subscription payment or whatever else you think is appropriate. Um, and I will very gratefully receive uh, all of those things, whether or not you have individually uh, listened to or skipped past an advert or bought any products that I might ever uh, advertise on the show you know me i think long and hard about whether or not to advertise things and um i thought yes i'll give this one a try but who knows will it be back next week we'll have to wait and see and uh in the meantime uh the oh and i've got to thank as well that's the best thing about being at leicester a couple of people came up and did the the sneaky money in your hand thing uh, and one of them even ran across the street at me at night. Now, I'm not recommending that that's a way we should proceed from now on, but um, a very nice man in a woolly hat dumped his his family. Well, I think he was with uh, his partner and at least one child, and he just... That, I think that's why I didn't freak out, because he'd run away from a family group towards me. I think if he just started sprinting towards me in the street, I would have been much more scared. But I didn't catch your name, kind sir. Thank you very much for your donation. And if you'd like to support the show, the rest of you... You can do that. And if you don't want to or can't pay, simply share it about the place, give it a positive review online and introduce it to your mum or your dad or your gerbil. Now, that is all uh, that front. I will chat to you a little bit more after this show. A little bit of a shout out for the tour. As many of you know, the tour uh, is rolling through the following places uh, over the next few weeks. Maidenhead, Crawley, Hull, Liverpool, Manchester, Oxford, Dublin, Nottingham, Reading, Corsham, McCuncliffe, Bristol, Bath, Norwich, Northampton, Warwick, well, it's Warwick Arts Centre, which is in Coventry, we all know that, Shrewsbury or Shrewsbury, Swindon, Farnham, Aldershot, Sheffield, York, Newcastle, Leeds, Southampton, Cambridge, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Birmingham, Brighton, London, Tring, Cardiff, Darleydale, Meacham and Droitwich. Those last three aren't true. That's what the DFS advert that was local to where I grew up used to say when they were trying to sell me furniture. I only remember Darleydale, Meacham and Droitwich. I don't think I've ever been to any of those places. I feel like I may have done a gig in Droitwich. Anyway, comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour. And uh, if you fancy getting your tickets for any of those things, you can do that there. Now, let's get back to Arabella Weir. It's interesting looking back at the your most notable contributions Does everyone to the say what good teeth you've got? Show. You've got very good teeth. Thank you. <laughs> Um, oh, these old things aren't oh, through, through them together. Um, I got these in America, they're fine. These, uh, your, your contributions, your most notable contributions to the Vast Show were all characters who were kind of uniquely feminist or saying something interesting in a way that the others were kind of funny. So, the jazz club guy, really funny. He doesn't say anything about anything. It's just sort of about how jazz names are funny. But yours specifically, I remember watching the Invisible Woman sketch the first time. Girly boys it, can't hear. Girly boys can't hear, apologies. 
Um, uh, yeah, Invisible Woman. <laughs> Turn up for that one. Um, I remember watching that the first time. In my defence, I would have been about 19. Right. And I didn't get the joke. I didn't get the joke because I, that, I wasn't, that wasn't a, a thing that I realised happened. And then later I got the joke and went, oh, right, that's a, that's a woman's experience, is it, that men ignore her and then claim that her ideas are their own? Why would I have? I was 19 and, yeah. you know, smoking lots of weed and, not, not, you know, not, my, my aerials weren't very outward-facing. But between that, does my bum look big in this, which was a kind of... Re- and incredibly, a sort of a, a reclaiming, a kind of from reading the real me as thin, that personal quest of being able to... I'm gonna, I've been hiding my bum for years. I've been feeling negative about it. I've been attacking myself for years. But to be able to turn that into a, a piece of comedy that people really understood, they seem to be really uniquely feminist and meaningful sketches. Well, that's very kind of you. I have to admit, I didn't think of them at the time, but I don't think with all my background and my combative nature, I'd have been likely to come up with a character who was... I mean, I remember distinctly seeing a woman do exactly that. She was all, fuck this, fuck that, bollocks to this, and then a bloke came in the room and she went, I I like (laughs) a little bit of your pudding. Would that be okay?" And I remember thinking, she's literally turned into a dolly for his benefit. And, of course, there was extra contempt for the blokes that go, she's just adorable. You go, no, she's not. She's playing you. Um, Oh, you're very aggressive. She's not like that. And go, yes, she is. She's just, uh, you know, she's just playing sort of weak and silly to make you feel more manly. So so that character was more of a kind of comment on, you know, uh, different with boys on that kind of woman. Um, But... So I didn't think of it in terms of feminism. I think I just thought I want to do the... The the one that was closest to a statement was The Girl Who Boys Can't Hear, and that was because that was my experience on The Far Show. It had been my experience. I mean, I was brought up with two older brothers who I was very much sidelined for, and that is also why I sort of developed um, a combative nature. And also my dad and mum... And my mother was highly intelligent and claimed to be a feminist, but they both made it clear that the most, the best thing I could be was pretty, above everything else. If I was pretty, that would be my door opener and that everything else would come thereafter. Whereas to my brothers, it was made very clear that they had to be super bright. They were both perfectly nice-looking men, but there was never any focus on what they looked like. And so I don't think in the fast show... I think also, in in a way, that probably... The fact that I was the only one was probably to my benefit. I probably had to come up with... There was less of a range for me to do. And also, of course, the, the platform isn't there. There is no, well, really, woman. You wouldn't have recognised a jazz club woman. I mean, she could have been a jazz club singer, but that still would have been a bit more obscure. Or I was trying to do generic woman in various situations. So, um, and my natural instincts would have been to go for a feminist character, but I don't, I mean, a feminist portrayal of a woman, but I don't think I'd have um, thought of it in those terms. I mean, there is a very awful story about a girl who boys can't hear. So we used to sit around and a couple of weeks or whatever it was, a couple of months before we started shooting, we'd all, we'd be said, let's have some new characters. Can you write some stuff for Insecure Woman? 
um, you know, write some stuff for no offence, but, you know, if you want any new characters, and I came up with Girl Who Boys Can't Hear. And we all sat around the table, and Paul and Charlie looked at it, at the sketches, and they said, no, this isn't funny. Uh, and I went, well... And they said, um, I don't think men will get this. And I said, no, but women will. And they kind of went, uh, no, I just... I, I don't think it's... Uh, I don't think it's going to play. And they were both a bit embarrassed about it, but they were a bit sort of like, yeah, it's not really, it's not funny. It's my, and, and then Simon Day said, no, this is us. We've got to do it. And then Paul and Charlie went, OK. Oh, my uh, so, God. So because what? I got the approval of Simon Day, uh, and he said, this is us, isn't it? And I went, yeah, this is literally rehearsing with you guys. I remember doing a Insecure Woman couple of sketches and Paul was ordering his lunch. Mark Williams was reading the newspaper. I don't think John Thompson had arrived. Simon Day was doing something else. It's before people had phones and it wasn't he was playing on his phones. And Charlie, no one. I literally went, no one is watching this sketch as we were rehearsing it. And everyone went, I went, you're literally not watching. And someone went, what? And I just thought I could be on fire <laughs> and they wouldn't be, no one would be paying attention. And um, so eventually, you know, well, thanks to Simon Day, noticing that it was how they treated me, the sketch got done, and then, of course, I got tonnes of letters for that as well. And people going, oh, I love that. Um, I was going to ask, did they know, when you were filming The Girl That Boys Can't Hear numerous times, were, were they sheepish? Were they, no, they got it any... by then. Well, Charlie once said to me, you know what people are going to say this sketch is called? And I went, what? And went, the woman who never stops talking. I went, oh, very funny, Charlie. I mean, Charlie was making a joke. So, no, they knew. I think it's like you might know, but you kind of do what you do until you're challenged, don't you? So I think they probably, they definitely, I mean, they all participated in the, in the sketches of Girl Who Boys Can't Hear with perfectly good humour. Um, and they did go, oh, God, this is us. And then I'd say, this is you guys. And then they go, oh, shut up. But, you know, we were like a sort of dysfunctional family. Well, I had like, we're just like a regular family. <laughs> um, you know, rowing and fighting and, you know, a lot of affection and a lot of intimacy. I don't mean, uh, and I, this is on record, I don't mean sexual intimacy, but, you know, the intimacy you have with working people all the time. But there was one girl and five blokes. Um, and that is not something I hope would happen again I think you'd be unlikely to have a sketch show with five blokes and one woman now I think people would just go you've got to have more women I'd like to think I mean we're still quite a long way aren't we I mean all the panel shows are still pretty blokey and uh, when they get a woman on it's one woman I mean god forbid they had four female guests yes or even you know it's all you know the yeah, line lineups for comedy bills are still you know pretty blokey yeah um, like, if you have two women on, the danger is, you know, the promoter might think consciously or unconsciously, well, I don't want them to think it's a special thing for girl women. night, you know. But then that'll change the more 
comedy promoters there are that are women. Yes, and it will change the more... I mean, it is an... In, I'm pleased to say it's an inescapable volume of female comics now. The amount of the amount of women who've started in the last five to ten years and are doing incredibly well. I mean, there are just... Your... And if I was going to be pretentious, which I know you like, uh, I'd be saying, and I, I paved the way for them. Fucking right! Well, I don't know whether I did, but I certainly, uh, by being a visible woman... Well, you know, you know, we're all the same age, Jennifer, Dawn, uh, Ruby... It's just got to, you know, if you don't see, I've got a very good friend, the actor Richard Wilson, and he's 18. I, I love to think that's how you address him <laughs> when texting him. The actor, yeah. <laughs> Hi, the actor Richard Wilson, he, um, he said it would never have occurred to him in a million years to be an actor if he hadn't done national service and left Scotland. Because he said, who would I have seen that modelled for me that I could do this. Um, I mean, he'd have obviously... Well, he wouldn't have had... A, he was, he's 81 now. He wouldn't have had a television growing up. But, you know, he might have gone to the odd cinema and there might have been some sort of movie stars there. But you just have to... And it's the same for sort of black and ethnic minority, everything's and women. You know, you've got to... They've got to be... They have to be there and be visible for you to think, oh, maybe I can do that. Otherwise, you're thinking, well, how am I going to do that and I'd like to think that I even thought about it in those terms when I was starting out but I didn't I just I mean I don't think I'm necessarily proud of this but I I and thanks to therapy it this has eased but my general approach to employment and then to audiences was you hate me and I've got to make you like me but my default mode is you definitely hate me. You start by hating me. There's absolutely no question that I will walk into the room and you'll go, oh, this is the next person we're meeting and I wonder what she's got to offer. I walk into the room thinking you all hate me. That's your position. And now I've got to make you like me. And that's where my sort of gladiatorial thing, and that's certainly, I don't think I'm the same with audiences now, which has also taken slightly the edge off doing comedy for me because I'm thinking I don't care if anybody likes me anymore. Whereas I used to go, you all hate me and I've got to make you like me. That's what I've got to and do. And that drive. The compulsion was yeah. you've got to like me. With the boys, it's you've got to fancy me. You've all got to fancy me, irrespective of whether I want to fancy you or whether I even want to have sex with you. Just everybody's got to fancy me, if possible. And if they don't fancy me, they've all got to think I'm hilarious. But their position will not be neutral. It'll be that they hate me. And, and therefore the, sort of, the, the friction was in making them like me. Yes, I'm... <laughs> I remember I had a dresser when I, for reasons, I think I was bored. Anyway, I agreed to do the last three months of, I mean, I make it sound like I'm inundated with offers. I'm not, which, so it was kind of like, oh, and that's a lot of money. And yeah, fuck it, I'll do it. I did the last three months of Calendar Girls in the West End, and it was a lot of money. And I did think it might be good fun. And, you know, anyway, you just, it's very much like the blokes I've slept with. You kind of go, yeah, he's, I don't fancy him that much, but, you know, he's here and why not? And I might get a dinner out of it. And then you'd, I have to say, I do also think this is still true of girls. You're so often, you're not brought up to think you've got choice. You, you're, you know, he won't fancy you if you do that. Um, I had this fantastic episode with my daughter, who's now 20, but was then 19, in a supermarket. And a woman was walking past us, and she was probably, I don't know, 32 or something. And she was going, it's fine if you don't want to see me, into a mobile phone. 
But, I mean, like, letting me know at six o'clock when I thought we were seeing each other tonight is just unacceptable. And I, completely wrongly, said to my daughter, oh, he's going to really fancy her now. Oh, wow. Right, because yeah. my thing was, be stroppy like that, he's not going to fancy you. And my daughter went, but she's completely right. He's obviously letting her down, and we looked at, you know, it's six o'clock. He's letting her down for tonight. And she said, it's not her job. And I went, you're so completely right. I mean, obviously, didn't, this woman didn't hear me. I said, you're so completely right. And I can't believe that I'm still thinking, don't do things that will make boys not like you. Yeah. And that, But you, anybody my age, and even a bit younger, was brought up with, boys must like you. That's just, that's just, you don't worry about whether you like him or not. You get him to like you. Because boys don't like you. Boys don't, they've got, if you're me, according to my parents, they've got no reason to like you. You're not funny, you're not pretty, you're not thin. Why would they want to be in the room with you? You better do major work to get that person to like you. And anyway, even once he likes you, he can go off you at the drop of a hat. Because you haven't, there's nothing intrinsically... You have to work and keep working. Keep working all the time because there's nothing intrinsically pleasing about you. There is no... You're not entitled to be liked or fancied. You've got to be sort of not eating, you know, blowjobs or whatever it is around the clock because otherwise you'll just go, what am I doing here? I mean, I'll just get off with Alison because, I mean, like, you're annoying me now. Um, I mean, obviously I had some episodes in my childhood that made... that really drove that home. My mother got rid of me and then my dad got rid of me. I mean, they sort of, you know, both said, don't want you around. I mean slightly differently worded but they did actually get rid of me so the early message was you can you are disposable I mean the idea of dispensing in my children I've got a boy and a girl is kind of like I, I literally don't understand how anybody would do it but I do know what their upbringings were and their circumstances mm. and you so I was very much brought up with the kind of you better be literally tap dancing every second of the day to be even a fraction likeable. Uh, and that probably won't be enough because there will always be somebody pretty uh, thinner and brighter than you are, and naturally. So, the, yes, yeah, so I absolutely approached audiences as you couldn't possibly like me. You couldn't possibly be here because you've seen me on telly or you like me. You, you know, you hate me. I mean, the logic of, well, what are they, why have they paid 15 quid to see you? Or what, you know, what are they doing there? That's never there. And as, as I've got older and had more therapy, I'm a bit more like, oh, I don't really care if nobody likes me anymore. So that has slightly taken the edge off it. Because <laughs> then I'm kind of like, oh. I think that is a perennial problem for comedians. Terry Alderton on this show was talking about the decision whether to go on antidepressants or not. Because his doctor said, oh, it might blunt your creativity. And he said, well, without them, I'm going to be here. You know, there is that, I think a lot of creative people, so many people that I talk to on this podcast have something driving them, whether it's a fear of something or a desperate need for something. Well, the, um, and it would be better for their mental health if that were resolved, but maybe not for their careers. Well, um, John Lahr, you know, the writer, he wrote Prick Up Your Ears, um, a famous writer, now in his 70s. And he is the son of Bert Lahr, who is the um, Lion in The Wizard of Oz. Okay. And his father was a vaudeville act. That's how he became a movie star. And he said, what normal person wants strangers to like them? And I thought, I remember him saying, I thought, fuck, that's right. 
why would anybody get up in a room full of people who don't know them and they're never going to see again and try and get them to... That's what I want to do for a living. I want to try and get strangers to like me. And there'll be no benefit in those strangers liking me other than a career because I'm never going to see any of them again. Um, So, yes, I think that's probably less true for actors in the true sense of being an actor. I don't think they have quite the combative relationship we have comics have with the audience where you're going no no no, come on I'm I on my own I'm gonna make you laugh and then you'll like me if I make you laugh and um tribute to your parenting though that your daughter was able to catch you on that and go whoa yes thank god to that yes I was very very pleased I can't believe because had I been with a girlfriend of mine she'd probably have gone oh yeah she did sound a bit shrill didn't she even though we're absolutely feminists and absolutely if my daughter said oh I went out with this bloke and he said you're a bit uh you're a bit RC so I don't want to see you again I'd have gone I'm gonna Mm. fucking kill it I'm interested in sort of the legacy of whether you whether you feel that you have managed to resolve all of that stuff from your parents whether you're given that you you have inspired you have played a part in inspiring female comics that you that you had these very you know in one of the breakout successful kind of influential shows of British comedy of the last 30 years you had you played a strong part that stood up for women that really made a series of points that kind of opened people's eyes but not you didn't bludgeon anyone with it Mm. it was funny and the kind of the message infiltrated brilliantly you know great I was if, if that hadn't been by design you couldn't have I don't think you could have done it better by design thank you so with all of that do you feel that you have? Do you have a sense of a resolution from from what you from what you started off with of like a, a fairly desperate actress concerned that people? You well, know, I'm not a desperate. Like it would be pretty tragic if I were desperate now. It'd be very tragic because, um, yeah, I'd still be. I'm in every possible way, actually and emotionally. And uh, professionally, I'm not hungry in the same way as I was. And some of that I regret because... Um, that's the regret noise. That goes. <laughs> uh, ping, that's a regret, please. <laughs> that's two regrets you've got now. So if you get to three regrets, I'm afraid we will have to cancel. Um, I, I, kind, I don't miss the unhappiness and the self-doubt, but I miss the hunger to create that sounds so pretentious i loved it it was good it was good i'm afraid it came out naturally because that i wanted people to like me and obviously i didn't quite work it i didn't sit down in the morning and go i'm going to write a sketch about insecure woman so that people will like me but that was obviously i was motivated by a desire to be popular to strangers and that gave me the drive. And then once I became popular, I didn't want that to stop because I loved the world that it had opened for me, which above all, and it wasn't money, and it certainly wasn't always, are you that girl in the supermarket? It was, I'm good at this, and the world is telling me I'm good at it because they're buying the stuff I do when I make this stuff. I want to carry on being able to make this stuff. Um, whether it be television or live stuff. And I loved that exchange. And I got to a place where I believed I was entitled to that exchange. You pay money to see me and I will put the work in. 
and I, you know, I am pleased you're here and I enjoy performing and I'm glad we're having this exchange. You're paying me money and I'm entertaining you and I know I can do that. Um, so I kind of miss the fact that partly from being a mother, but partly, no, that's not fair, it probably, no, I was just as hungry when after I became a mother. I think really having therapy and sort of letting go of the mania is a good thing, but I'm also a lot older, so I'm, I wish, I mean, I still sort of will have a bath and go, I'm definitely going to do a stand-up, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do a stand-up show on my own about stuff, and then I think, am I really, because who's going to be in the audience, and I mean, I like women my age, and I like women, I'd be, you know, I always remember, I don't, I've never seen her whole act, but I just remember seeing a bit of Kathy Griffin saying, are there any men in the audience? And uh, some people putting their hands up and her saying, look, guys, I've got nothing for you. <laughs> and uh, I just thought that was very funny. And I thought, well, I wish I'd... And I tried something like that once and it didn't go down very well in an audience because for some... I think because of the fast show, whenever I've done live stuff, people will come in couples. And I think, well, don't bother. You know, just come with your girlfriends. Um... If I were giving advice, I'd say you don't want to lose the hunger, but if the hunger comes at being miserable, then it's not a price worth paying because it's too high a price. You know, you look at particularly... I was. You look at... I'm actually thinking of quite a lot of female actresses, actors, that haven't had children and you because they've been touring and this or doing that, and you think, I'm not sure. Not that you've, all women have got to have children by any means. I'm just saying I know quite a lot of people of my generation who sort of didn't have children, didn't have relationships, and you kind of think, yes, but now you're a sort of cat person, and you may have... I think performing requires a lot, as you well know, of one. And anyway, the hours are so antisocial... And it's such a clubby world. You know, you and I will have had some of the best nights of our lives at midnight in bars where you're not necessarily going home with anyone, but you're all a gang. But that does not lend itself well to married life or being a parent. And and so... And it has it's, it's such a quick fix comedy. It's such a temporary... It's a quick fix for things that maybe need a proper fix. Ah, oh, but man, what a fix. I mean, the <laughs> high of... The high of being popular and being on stage and making... I mean, there is nothing like that. I can't imagine. When you're talking about doing the fast show live, I saw that. I had the VHS cassette of that, <laughs> uh, that show. I didn't see it live. I remember seeing Bottom live. Oh, and, wow, there you go. And, that and was, they were having the time of their lives. They were having the time of their as lives. As we were. I mean, we did put work into the fast show live and we did rehearse yeah, it Yeah, and there were and things resolved and there was oh, yeah. plot and stuff. But, it was great. But, you know, coming out and sort of, you know, three and a half thousand people... Or when I've done stuff on my own, you know, 80, 90 people going, I'm having a nice time and you're making that happen. It's just a great, great feeling. But it is, of course, diminishing returns. That's the other thing you have to remember. You don't want to be one of those... I mean, if they want to do it, good for them, but I don't want to be the Rolling Stones. I just think, what a bunch of disgusting old blokes going, ooh, ooh, and you just think, oh, no, you look like a twat. I mean, he's probably not worrying Mick Jagger about what I think. 
Uh, and if he's going, I can sell out the O2. But I'm sort of thinking, surely there's a stage at which you just go, oh, come on. But I do think that's more true of comedy. I definitely think sketch shows are a young person's game. And I don't necessarily think comedy is a young person's game, but it might be. I might be shooting myself in the foot here. I mean, Joan Rivers became a kind of... She sort of came back on herself, didn't she? You know, she she had always been at it since she was 20, but then sort of reinvented herself in her 60s and 70s and 80s. But it, it's not... You can't think of that many... Well, maybe it's just a female thing. I mean, I can't even think of that many old comics I'd want to see. Would I? Do I? I mean, think of an old I, comic. I think it must... Think of I, a stand-up who's over 60. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I can think of some, but I don't know if they want to, everyone to know they're over 60. Well, there's that kind of... You then have to become a sort of turn, don't you? You become sort of Bruce Forsyth and... Well, I don't think you have to become anything. And I think one of the most exciting things about comedy is that you can decide the terms in which you're doing it and you can tell everyone... You can... You can set the expectations of the audience. That's you tell definitely them, true. You tell them what they're getting. And so if you did a stand-up show, as long as you frame it like, this is me doing my stand-up show, the audience will go, oh, right, oh, this is what she does now. Right, and then I would, and then we'd be back to me hating them because they'd come see the show. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and then the creative yeah, But then friction. I'd be going, I kind of hate you for coming to see this, but now I don't even care about hating you. I just fucking hate you. I don't even care about hating you. Great title. Yeah. I don't even care that I hate you. Well, it used to be, I hate you, but you've got to love me. And then I'll love you if you love me, but I'll still hate you. But now it's kind of like... The fringe guide won't let you put that in. It's too yeah, many words. It's too many. The <laughs> fair, 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 fair. Too many characters. Um, well, now it's... I don't think I hate most people. I think I'm more of a Democrat and an egalitarian than I used to be. But I'm just... I love the people I love. And I'm not that bothered. I mean, I'm still a socialist. I still do things that don't benefit me but benefit others. But I'm not looking for the adulation of strangers anymore. But I wouldn't mind doing a, a live show again. Probably. Don't know why. Just because it'd be good fun. I mean, look, before I'm about to go on stage, I'd be literally going, why on earth have I said I'll do this? The world's falling out of my ass. I don't want to do this. I don't need to do this. I'm sorry I'm here. That'd be my opening line. <laughs> I don't need to do this. I'm quite well off and I'm really sorry I'm here. And it's I'm staying good... in a shit hotel. <laughs> it's a good opener. And I don't know why I'm not sleeping in my own expensive mattress. Um, on my own. I don't sleep in my mattress. Um, so, but yes, the... I think if you're very lucky as a performer, what you can do if you're well, if you're focused and and you learn to channel stuff properly, you will make your hunger slash anxiety slash hope that strangers, you know, desire to make strangers like you work for you, but just don't let it eat you up. Yes, and there must be, I'm sure, I mean, there are there are people who can take that combination of hunger and fear and anxiety the thing that drives their comedy and they have learned to step back from it so that they can have a happy life and then when they go into right i'm going to go on tour again i'll write another show they can go right tap into this bang i don't know who they are off the top of my uh, yeah, head but I'm, it would be I'm nice just thinking to think of, i'm thinking of 
the people I know, and unfortunately, I'm going to say, and I am going to say this, I think that is easier if you're a bloke. Because, of course, I mean, I was listening to a female politician yesterday on the radio, nothing to do with comedy and nothing to do with performing, but she said, women, she said, we haven't got equality because women are still doing the childcare, women are, and if you're lucky enough, women are paying other women to do the work they can't do. They're not sharing it with men, and men aren't doing that. Low-paid men aren't being, by and large, nannies, cleaners. So she was going, we, you know, we've got a long way to go, and all the comics I know that are still doing it, either, and they are men, are either able to tap the crazy, neurotic, needy self because that's completely separate to their home life, mm-hmm. or they've just, you know, I'm trying to, th- I, yeah, or it's just easier to be compartmentalised if you're a bloke. Je propose. Now, how's that for pretentious? Uh, I may, I, my son would no doubt be going, that is so sexist. And it may not be true of a modern bloke, but I, I remember somebody asking me to put my... Somebody, I was breastfeeding my, um, I don't know, two-week-old daughter as we were rehearsing for the Fast Show Live uh, just gone 20 years ago. And um, I think it was Simon said, oh, do you have to do that in here? And I wasn't doing any kind of, you know... Um, I didn't have my entire boob flopped out, not that it would have mattered if I did, but I was doing what I was comfortable with, which is, you know, she was feeding and I think I sort of just got my T-shirt pulled down or something. Or maybe I'm sure I wore a button-up top. You know, there wasn't a kind of here I am on the front of Loaded. And, uh, and I went absolutely mental and I said at least two people in this room have got wives at home with their children I am the breadwinner in my house and I'm feeding her so you can fucking get over yourself. And, of course, being me, it was full of expletives and, you know, I was just admiring the other day. Uh, I didn't see it, but I read a report about Joe Brand on Have I Got News For You doing that very... And I thought, now, Joe is much less combative than me and has, you know, an entirely different style to me. But I thought... Now, I'd have just been effing and blinding. And Joe just was very contained. It was a phenomenally good put down. And she said, as I was reading in the piece, she said, I didn't plan to do it uh, normally. As with me, it would have been much more angry, but it just sort of came out. Um, so, yes, I did tell Simon, let's say it was Simon, to go and fuck himself. Um, but... That has been, certainly for my generation of comics, that has been my experience. They've all got wives. And I mean wives. They, you know, some of the wives have had jobs but not on their levels in terms of demands and earnings. So, you know, I've had to be there, be a mother, be the principal and often only breadwinner in my house. And there wasn't any, there was just no way I wasn't going to, be there, but I mean, I, looking back, I could have, I suppose, I could have possibly been a bit less angry, but I don't think I'd have got where I got if I hadn't been so angry. 
because I learned to channel the anger into creativity. There's another pretentious thing to say. The thing about me is I've learned to channel my <laughs> anger into creativity. I mean, but let's face it, all anger is misdirected, isn't it? I mean, you just get your anger, which is, after all, energy, and make it work for you. But, it's all, other, but if you're leaning out of a car going, oh, yeah, fuck it, you know, it's misdirected. You want to make sure it works for you. You just um, don't want it to eat you up. So, yeah, like a lot of my life, I only know what I think when someone's disagreeing with me. Uh, or rather, I'm just sort of thinking what I think, and then someone goes, oh, no, and I go, are you fucking taking the piss? Um... I was interviewed, I think it was for The Real Me Is Thin, so not even that long ago, but to be absolutely fair, maybe... So let's say it was like seven or eight years ago, six or seven years ago. A female journalist said to me, something, something, you were the adjunct of The Fast Show. And I remember thinking, no, I I know what adjunct means, so she, she can't mean that. As um, in adjacent to something, yeah, right. Gotcha. The, the add-on. Yeah. Okay. The sort of extra, the unnecessary oh, okay. extra. And I went, what? I said, no, wait a minute, I think adjunct means this. And she went, yeah. And I, I literally went, are you out of your fucking mind? You're a woman and you're asking me if I was the sort of unnecessary extra. And she went, well, so, and I went, have you fucking seen the far show? Anyway, we, I had a, she sort of came round to my way of thinking. <laughs> but I said, I can't even believe you're thinking. You're, you think that would be okay to ask. And then afterwards I thought, yeah, you got like that because that's what you sort of think. The fast show, in your mind, the fast show would have been the fast show. I know this isn't logically true, but in the voice as contributed to largely by my parents, of course the fast show would have been what it was without you. You could just, just pull you out. And it's finally when I just, as I said, I just had my daughter, or maybe I just had my son, and we were going to do the tour of the fast show and I did actually go, I'm not going to do it. And they said, we can't do it without you. And I went, yeah, you can. And they went, no, we can't. And I thought, no, they probably can't do it without me. Well, it's that thing. You don't know what element you take out of a thing that makes it not that thing. And then everyone goes, oh, yeah, it hasn't got that thing anymore. So now I don't like it. But anyway, how, what was the question? Have I? So did you manage or can you, if you haven't, can you foresee ever managing to quiet that voice? Or is that... No, so that, a part of you that 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 kind of habitual voice of like well here's why actually this doesn't you know i'm not contributing the way i thought i would you know that that first you mean can i still alloy everything that's good what uh, do you mean by alloy like put, you know make it shit uh can i make everything turn to shit yeah uh did you overcome that yeah, have you i mean you definitely might... definitely absolutely definitely uh, I don't imagine I'd ever go onto a beach. I mean, I'm older now, so that'd be another reason. But I don't imagine I'd ever go onto a beach going, just don't care what I look like in this swimming costume. Just do not care. That's probably never going to happen. But that's not because... But I'll still go on the beach and I will wear what I want to wear. But I, So that, in terms of my body, that's probably never going to happen. Uh, but I definitely sated the monster the the performing monster yeah and that's and that's what I say and that's a bit sad that's a bit of a loss because then you go oh well yeah I don't really care if I do it anymore and I should care uh I should care you shouldn't do anything if you don't care about it and that's probably a bit of a loss but if if it came 
if the price or rather if the reward of losing that is that you're more content with yourself, then that's a price worth paying. But it'd be kind of nice to be going, I really want to do this. I really hope this happens. But that's the other problem. I mean, that's the problem with ageing. You get older and you think nothing matters that much. Which is a good and a bad thing. But you kind of go, eh, nothing matters that much. Thanks. Thank you. So that was Arabella. Thank you so much to her for coming on the show. Uh, thanks to her son, Archie, for providing us with some very entertaining movie pitches uh, after we spoke. And um, maybe you could tweet at Arabella. Um, I'm c- trying to convince Arabella to do a podcast. I think she'd be fantastic at it. She's, I'm not the only person to have tried to nudge her towards this as well. So I can't take credit at all if she starts doing one. But she's such a good talker. She's so passionate. And uh, I think I think the form, the medium of podcasting would really suit her. So don't tweet at her. I don't want to harass her. But why don't you tweet at me at ComComPod, you can tweet your ideas for an Arabella Weir podcast and I will pass them on to her or make her aware of them. That's fair. Then I'm not asking you to sort of flood or harass anyone with, uh, with ideas, which I'm sure will be uniformly excellent. I will talk to you in just a moment and uh, uh, if you would like to stick around for a post-amble, we can do that. Um, but otherwise, that concludes all of the actual content of the podcast, so feel free to bail now and I'll speak to you next week. Remember, comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour if you'd like to come and see me on tour. And hey, people of Leicester, that was fun. It was full and it was fun and I really enjoyed it. So I feel like I'm starting the tour now on my best foot and uh, on my best foot, putting my best foot forward. I feel like you knew what I meant. Thanks. Bye for now. So this is the postamble and what to say. Ha ha. Thank you to everyone who was involved in the events of this week. And the events of this week were largely uh, a bit of a storm in a teacup on uh, the Facebook group, which has since, I think, been resolved. But it has made me think about the way that group works. Uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail. You were there or you weren't. And... um, uh, please don't feel now that if you don't know what it was, you need to join the Facebook group and go, hey, what was it? What was it? Just let's just move on. Basically, the Facebook group is now big enough that there's nearly 6,000 people. There's a lot of extremely vibrant conversation recommendations of stuff in there. A lot of people had some things to say about last week's episode. Some people had some very angry things to say about elements of last week's episode, elements of my part in it. And... Basically, it's made me realise that the the show is now big enough and that Facebook community is now big enough that it's not it's not a forum. You know, it's not just like a sort of a a private forum where you can get together and chat. I'm in it. So if people say things in it about me, I really see them. And I spend a lot of time reflecting on them and wondering how best to reply and whether I should reply. And should I just post? Should I comment on things? I, I really I've been reflecting a lot in the last week about the nature of. Like if if there were if there were if we were talking six hundred thousand people, I'd be a celebrity. I'd be famous. I'm not a celebrity. I'm not famous. I'm very satisfied with my level of fame. I think I said in an interview for the for the tour show recently that one of the lovely things about my relationship with my fans is that there aren't that many of them, but they're super committed and they know me inside out. And I say them, I mean you. So um, I don't want to pull the plug on the Facebook group. I don't want to bail out of it. It's a really enjoyable place to continue some of the themes and discussions of of this podcast. Um, 
But equally, I think I need to protect myself a little bit because, like I said, it's not a sealed forum where fans can chat about a thing. It's a group that I'm in. Maybe I should leave it and let everyone get on with it. Maybe I should just take a bit more of a back seat. I haven't come to any clear uh, uh, decisions about this. I think all I'm raising is that in the life of a very small time, I can't even say a small time celebrity, in the life of a very uh, a, a sort of privately public figure, I'm not even one of them. I don't know what I am. But in the life of a podcaster, I think having that group, I benefit from that. And I've, part of it is I've got to take a look at myself and go, well, I benefit from this. And yes, it's nice to feel the boss of a tiny little fiefdom on the Internet. And I, I'm excited that I say things there and people take notice. But I hope I don't exploit that or, or kind of get off on it too much. I just think that I need to be aware that it's a place for discussion. Contrary opinions are allowed. But what isn't allowed from anyone on any side of any debate is to kind of have a go at each other. So, and I mean this in a general way, I'm not talking too specifically about any specific incident or person. But moving forward, I think we need, as people, to be polite to one another. And of course, the internet fucks that up because you can't tell when someone, a lot of the time, and sometimes you can tell when people are angry, but a lot of the time you can't tell if someone is... Like, it, I feel like it's a bit like when your parents join Facebook and then someone, a mate of yours, says a comedy cutting in, uh, comment, which is like a, a running joke that slams you. And then, like, your mum weighs in <laughs> to defend you. And you go, no, 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 that's just complicated things. So, you know, I, friends of mine are often saying that my uh, my own personal Facebook, because there are some people on there who added me after gigs and stuff um, and who don't know me personally, my friends sort of say I do a joke and then like the first four comments will often be people who haven't understood the joke or, you know, it's like a private joke or they don't get it or whatever. So it's just part and parcel of that sort of thing. But because of the way we communicate with each other online, particularly now at a time when people are very polarised in this country after the, the, the EU referendum, at a time when people are becoming, it seems to me, further polarised from one another on issues of feminism or the Me Too movement, people are getting pulled and pulled and pulling ourselves further and further apart. And at the same time, maybe the two are linked, <laughs> discourse online is most of the discourse and there are no faces and there are no human faces you don't meet people so people are so quick to take offense and so quick to refer to I you know one of the things that drives me nuts is when people get good at arguing online because arguing online isn't the same as arguing it's not a debate you know the 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 ways in which people treat each other in comments where and I don't just mean comments on Facebook, but but anything, any kind of forum related Internet discourse can so. Oh, God, I'm not saying anything original here. I'm just saying it's a struggle. I'm just saying it's a bit of a struggle, isn't it? When when people who if they met in the pub would almost certainly get on. And you on the outside can watch two people who are making the same point and hate the way each other are making it and get dragged further and further apart. And like now we are facing so many challenges as a, as a society that and we always have been, of course. But now the challenges are so immediate and so potentially life threatening and societally threatening that now it would be a great time if we all just gathered around one big campfire. <laughs> Go to onebigcampfire.com to receive your free...
cushion. I don't know. So anyway, it's it's been a, it's been a trying week, and one of the the things the reasons for me, I, I would probably have found it less trying if I was a little bit stronger mentally. Um, but anyway, look, we're moving on from it. I would like to continue to exhort you all to join the Facebook group. I will come up with sometime soon some some kind of moderator rules. I may deputise one or two other people to help me look after it a little bit because I do want it to remain this incredibly this is let's let's finish on this more positive element of it a week ago someone posted in the comcom facebook group a a slightly off color pretty sexist not like misogynist but just kind of gently thunderingly sexist kind of it was a joke it was a little one liner joke about not understanding women and uh, you know it was it was tone deaf they had not read the room by any means and um, I left it there because by the time I discovered it, there were like 30 comments from people which were gently chiding, funny put downs. Do you know what I mean? It was along the lines of read the room, mate. You know, it was it was coped with so well by the uh, Facebook podcast group community um, that. Uh, I was really proud of it. And I said, I'm going to leave this up because some people were saying, oh, we should, should, should delete this because it's a bit off colour. And I thought, no, because actually it's a really good example of, I feel like it's a very happy little corner of the internet, that group. So in order to keep it like that, I will impose strict conditions. <laughs> but, you know, uh, it, I want it to remain like that. So um, so if you chance to go along there, please be unfailingly polite to everyone. Even if you disagree with them, let's not slag off comics. I'm a comic. Let's not slag off me. Um, and uh, if you have a like a direct comment on the show or something about the show is making you furious then feel free to email me info at comedianscomedian.com because that way i can deal with you on a sort of one-to-one basis um if that comes up again rather than making a rather than starting a collective argument i i think that's a as good way as, as of dealing with it as any other and i may live to regret saying that um but at least there's you know there's always delete buttons aren't there so and on that note on a, on a very happy note to end with, thank you to... Now, this is, this is funny, right? I am making this observation purely because it is absolutely true, right? Um, a lot of men on the Facebook group gave their opinions about things recently. And I received one or two emails saying, um, hey, all this stuff that's going on the Facebook group, I, I kind of thought this from men. And I received nine emails only from women saying, hey, don't worry about that, man. <laughs> we really love what you're doing. So uh, so that is just a little comment about... It's not a comment about gender. I'm simply producing some evidence. That's interesting, isn't it? Lots of men had opinions and lots of women said, hey, don't worry about those guys. <laughs> so, so there we go. Um, all's well that ends well, onward and upward. And uh, I hope that you do see your way to joining that group and uh, and in enjoying it because there really are some great stuff there. And also people are forever putting up tickets at face value to sold out gigs that they can no longer go to. Comedy gigs, I mean, not just, you know, Iron Maiden. <laughs> yeah, because that, that's my go-to band. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'll be back soon with more great content. Bye for now. <laughs> 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.